Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this story. We pray that your word would uh, just dwell richly in our hearts this morning and uh, that by your spirit we would just avail ourselves to understanding, to change, Lord, to, um, to hope and to power that you've promised when we lean on you and we believe in you. Lord, we trust in you for our salvation through the mighty waters of, of life and, um, Lord, beyond death and into your glory. Thank you for this promise. We bless our children today. We pray as they learn all the more what it means to be worshipers and learn all the more who you are and how worthy you are of our worship and of our lives. You bless them and bless those who are teaching them. And let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, I suppose uh, the first detail in our gospel today that we should attend to is the basic matter of fact that Jesus is confronted by a malevolent evil being called Diabolos in the Greek. In Hebrew, it's Satan. Literally, they translate as adversary or accuser. So today, we're going to have to talk about the devil, aren't we? But the truth is, that shouldn't be a problem for Christians. I want to tell you why. Now, there are no shortage of occasions in the Gospels when Christ himself talks about and to the devil, and he confronts not just people or institutions behaving badly, but overt demonic evil even shrieking at his presence or tormenting people. And yet there are plenty of admirers of Christ who prefer a sentimental Jesus, Understandably, on one level, a moral sage who's kind of customized to just fit our materialist age without all that supernatural and demonic stuff. There are also no shortage of materialist Bible scholars who are eager to suggest none of this could actually be literal, but merely symbolic and instructive. It's pretty instinctive, actually, for modern Western people Uh, to be content with what really is an 18th century idea that things must either be spiritual or natural, and probably not very spiritual. The psychological, right, ends up kind of belonging to the natural as we understand it, and, but we arguably have no reason to dismiss that there could always be an overlap or a continuum between the natural and the spiritual. At least for Christians, it's reasonable to think that the whole person, body, mind, and spirit, is actually subject to a wide and mysterious range of causes for trouble and for suffering, not just at the individual level, but at the systemic level. But here's the good news. Thankfully, the whole person, body, mind, and spirit, is also subject to the love and the rescue and the healing of God, regardless of how physical or spiritual any given suffering is. It's worth quoting C.S. Lewis here, uh, right at the jump. He said this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both er errors and hail a materialist and a magician with the same delight. 
When my son Silas was smaller, uh, he was often curled up near me or his mom, heavily engrossed in a book, sometimes bigger books than I was reading at the time. And he's a teenager now, so he likes actually to just be alone and at an often disturbing frequency and duration. And that's hard when you used to have a kid who would curl up next to you all the time. Some of you know the parental discomfort of which I speak. When he was around 9 or 10, he broke from his immersive reading to ask me a question. He said, Dad, did you know the Nazis killed 6 million Jewish people? Not what I was expecting to hear at the moment. Yes, son, I did. He said, how could that even happen? And he, he said this apparently rhetorically because he just sighed and returned to his book. Right. How? How could one terribly deluded and monstrously ambitious man be able to sway the hearts of a whole nation? How could one destabilized economy after a, a war create such a vacuum for mass brainwashing? How could one awful set of ideas convince even a national church to be complicit in the annihilation of one million children? Furthermore, how could it have happened less than a hundred years ago? In a book called Rethinking the Holocaust, historian and scholar Yehuda Bauer argues that the basic motivation was purely ideological, rooted in an illusionary world of Nazi imagination, an international Jewish conspiracy to control the world was opposed to a parallel Aryan quest. And this is what he says, it's interesting, he said, no genocide to date had been based so completely on myths, hallucinations, on abstract, non-pragmatic ideology, but that was then executed by very rational, pragmatic means. People of Jewish descent had dispersed all over, you know, over a period of time, dispersed and were living and working and thriving all over uh, Europe and nations and around the world. And they presented no military or political threat, in, um, you know, as an ethnic or religious group. But their formidable presence in culture, in the arts, government, and so on, it inflamed not just Germany's sense of insecurity and entitlement, but others as well. And we know the story. Fear, control, insecurity, manipulation, misinformation, and many generations of racial animus just finally bubbling over into the unthinkable. Egypt and Auschwitz were thousands of years and miles apart, but the same terrible reality, with no shortage of atrocities in between. Surely the world is a much different place now. With the miracle of the internet, and the cozy campfires of social media bringing us all together. <laughs> Certainly our enlightened universities, which are bastions of pluralism and free thinking and curiosity, they're freeing us from the insularity and the ideology. Surely progress and prosperity will make good on their promises. Maybe not. You probably heard me say we humans actually have a way of making problems out of our solutions which stinks. We're often well-meaning. We chronically fix one thing only to break another. The course of the pandemic, I think, is a stark reminder. We tried. So should we be surprised when it appears there is a kind of enduring sabotage at work, even though, generally speaking, we all probably want the same thing? At least most of us. 
Now, the secular view of this problem tends to be either cynical or idealistic. Let me explain that. The cynic attempts to identify all the awful and ignorant people among us who are in the way and then to villainize and to marginalize them. If we can get those people out of the way, we can move forward in progress. And the idealist imagines that these wormy people are, are actually butterflies who have yet to, emer- uh, to enter and emerge from the chrysalis of culture and enlightenment. If we could just get them to do that, then everything will be great and okay. But for followers of Jesus, we believe there's more than just a moral deficit, more than just, a, just psychological weakness, and of course there is, or ideological willfulness. And there's certainly, certainly not less than those. But we also believe there is a malevolent pres- presence of manipulation and of confusion and of resistance to the kingdom of God. In other words, humanity has the wrong kind of help, perpetuating an unbroken cycle of undermining ourselves and the world God loves. Incidentally, it's funny, every Sunday when I'm about to preach about the devil, which isn't super often, it's a hard week. Take that for for what it's worth. It was a uniquely hard week. Relationally and all sorts of things. I won't even get into all that. It's just interesting. So what's suddenly going on in the New Testament? Okay, let's get back to the gospel and to Jesus' ministry. What's suddenly going on in the New Testament with all this confrontation? And many scholars, including N.T. Wright, who is one of my favorites, um, they believe that Christ's presence actually created a climate where what had been primarily covert and impersonal uh, demonic spiritual activity in the Old Testament, it became overt and it became agitated and it became aggressive, and it became personal. They came out of the woodwork when the Word became flesh. This was an unprecedented confrontation that began in the wilderness when Jesus is baptized, when the Spirit of God fell on Him, and when a voice from heaven proclaimed, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Suffice it to say, the powers of hell were not pleased. Quite the opposite. For 40 days after his baptism, Jesus is alone. He's given completely to prayer and fasting in anticipation of the ministry that that the Father is giving him in the power of the Spirit. In the final days of this time, at the deepest point of his weakness and his hunger and his dependence, he's confronted directly by this adversary to tempt him away from that ministry and toward what? Toward self-sufficiency, self-promotion, and preservation, and a shortcut around the cross. Jesus doesn't power up, right? He doesn't shoot luminous energy from a staff at Satan like Gandalf the wizard. He doesn't harness some divine indifference to Satan as though he's not there. He doesn't even at this point start praying to the Father again for deliverance. What does he do? Let's talk about it. For most of the two millennia since the resurrection... The larger debates in Christianity have been about what Scripture actually says about God or about God's people. But in the last two plus centuries, now that we've finally achieved expert status on how everything works, the debate is about whether or not this historic text actually says anything we can fully trust, much less lean on when things get hard, when we're accused, when we're attacked, or when we're afraid, when things don't make sense. When God seems like a distant landlord at best. 
Coincidence? I don't think so. Strategy. Jesus was not putting his scripture memorization skills to the test in the power of the Spirit. He was depending in his weakness on the strength of the truth in the face of a smooth lie. He was retelling the story of a world that's ultimately held together by God's will and God's ways. By invoking the scriptures, Jesus was countering a counterfeit, a counterfeit glory that was both physically and emotionally enticing in the face of his hunger, in the face of his calling. And he did this for us. The apostles, um, namely Paul and Peter, and then you get from Jude and, of course, John, who we quote when we send our problems to the, to the cross, we send the devil's works to the cross of Christ. They warn us to be aware that Satan is always scheming, which means we probably don't know what's at work when it's at work. We need to be wary. They're intending fundamentally, to let us know that Satan is intending fundamentally to oppose God at every turn. And to oppose us because he's opposed to God. We're not just the audience. We are the objects of Satan's accusation because human life, get this, is imbued with a unique and sacred connection to the holy. Humanity is a unique glory. The glory of God, mysteriously made by the Creator in His own image and likeness. By opposing us, the devil is opposing God. By hating God, Satan is hating us. And this is an important aside, though. Whatever you might believe about yourself today or have been told, you are indelibly beautiful and a work of God's genius. You might think that you're one of the duller knives in the drawer, so to speak, but the truth is your mind is a miracle. It's a miracle. Your capacity for awareness and creativity and connection are unparalleled in all creation. Unparalleled. And this isn't simply because the primordial ooze that we came from oozed a little better and a little bit faster than all the rest of the ooze. It's because humanity is the glory of God. It's because you have meaning. It's because you have purpose and you have value. You are loved. And you know what? You have an enemy. And all of what I just said are the reasons why. If the accuser can keep sowing scarcity and hatred and chaos in the world and in our hearts, then the accusation lands on God again and again. Do you see that? The accusation, is he really good? Can he really be trusted? Are you really loved? Do you really have meaning? Does your life really matter? Is the world just a dumpster fire that we're all just trying to get far enough away from to avoid getting burned? This world God supposedly made and loves. But here's the really good news in Jesus' singular confrontation with Satan. It's not just symbolism. There is a symbolism, but it's far deeper than this. This is a drama of atonement and redemption, of salvation. Jesus comes out of the water of baptism like Israel crossing the Red Sea. And in baptism, Jesus has taken on himself spiritually and symbolically, we would call it sacramentally. He's taken on himself the burden of all humanity's sin and the need to be cleansed from it. Jesus didn't need to be baptized. He says he did it to fulfill all righteousness. Your righteousness that only comes through his righteousness. 
He follows the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days to do what Israel could not do for herself in those 40 years in the wilderness of willfulness and wandering. This is nothing short of God Himself enacting a new exodus, not just for Israel, but for all humanity to whom Israel was called to be a light. This time in the wilderness, this time in Jesus, Israel trusts God fully. This is also nothing short of the Son of God becoming a new Adam. Think about the temptations. As the story goes, Adam and Eve, who, whatever you might believe about them, they are, in the story, they are humanity's representative father and mother, in a sense. And they couldn't recall what God had really said, could they? Not when faced with this kind of temptation and confusion. They apparently couldn't remember who God really is. When Satan asked them, did God really say, their desire for more became a confusing cloud that actually harmonized with the accusation. Maybe God was holding good, withholding good from them. Maybe they should eat. But here in the wilderness, Jesus' response was crystal clear. It is written. It is written. It is said. He didn't forget. He knew. And he spoke. Jesus isn't confused. And in the throes of agonizing hunger, he denies the forbidden food of the tempter. What this means is just incredible news. Because the Father's pleasure in the Son of God that is proclaimed at His baptism is actually being shared with us. With you and me, with all humanity, instead of a shortcut to his own satisfaction and power and dominion, and instead of the same old story of scarcity and mistrust swaying a hungry heart, Jesus looks beyond his own pleasure to ensure that the Father's pleasure in him would become his pleasure in us. To anyone who believes in him, who confesses, as our uh, epistle said today, I believe one of the greatest contributions that the Christian faith offers to humanity and toward the possibility of empathy and mutuality, like the big picture of what we want, it is the truth that we do have a common enemy. This means that the human I might believe is my enemy has a spiritual enemy himself. And this enemy of my enemy is not my friend, despite what the ancient proverb said. Quite the opposite. We have a common enemy, but more importantly, we have a common power in a common story. It's the story we're trying to tell the world. The gospel means that we have a hope beyond our bootstrapping and our constant duct taping to live in the world in hope. In the confrontation with darkness and suffering, even though we are just earthen vessels, as Paul said, there is a surpassing power that is not from us, but from God. There is a story that can make sense of and withstand this enemy of God and all that's good. Friends, what the enemy of our souls wants more than anything is to ensure that we don't recover even the tiniest bits of who we are made and empowered to be. And that we don't see God's image in others at all. So what is our shared goal in this Lenten season? 
and we begin right here in the wilderness with Jesus, our shared goal is nothing short of our own bodily participation in prayer and fasting and being others-minded. It's a participation with the Spirit in the recovery of the image and likeness of God in us and in all humanity. We are representative in this sense. It's for us to return to the fact and power of our baptism, to reckon with our sin and temptation, to hear the pleasure of the Father provided for us by His Son's obedience. Even when we fail, and it's for us to identify the lies that have enticed us away from the one true story of the world. As bombs fall on apartment buildings in the Ukraine, as our own nation is fraying at so many seams, as global anxiety is at an all-time high and escapism and nihilism and navel-gazing become the order of the day, the world needs far, far more than a sentimental but not very spiritual Christianity. I'm just saying is all. It's just true. The world needs far better than a church that is primarily concerned with the halls and levers of human power because, hey, there's far more than human power at work very often in those. The world needs the same Jesus who loved us enough to take on our hunger and to turn it into prayer. The world needs the Jesus who loved us enough to face the wilderness of weakness and temptation and turn it into power over the enemy. The world needs the Jesus who loved us enough to endure the violence of the cross and the apparent finality of the tomb and to turn it into victory. We need this Jesus who loves us enough to give us His Spirit and His Word so that we too can face our wilderness in faith. I close with this thought, and I've kind of touched on it already, but church, we know what's going on uniquely. And it's sad when we don't act like it. Even if the world doesn't know, we know what humanity is really facing. We know how the story ends. So we too go into the wilderness with Christ, not only for ourselves, but for the world. To pray. To feel the deep hunger of humanity. You probably already feel it. What are you doing with it? to feel that hunger and to admit our temptation to fall away, to fast and to face the enemy in a certain kind of power that comes from self-denial. It's just written into the code. To commune with God not only for ourselves but for the sake of others. This is the ministry of Christ to us. This is the ministry of Christ through us. So Lynn isn't just about you, friends. And let's be honest, we all have enough of our own sins and our own problems to make it that way. But you can't help but when you bow the knee and when you commune with Christ in the wilderness of your own life, carrying the heaviness of the world, you can't help but be a minister of reconciliation and of hope and of power over the enemy of all that's good. We have an enemy, but we have a Savior. It is written. Do we believe it? And Lord, we confess today that there's so many narratives out there that would have us cease to trust you and doubt whether that is even the right way to get, get on with it in the world and in our lives and through our problems and in the wilderness that inevitably comes. 
But whatever it looks like for each of us and all of us together, help us to meet you in your power and in your pleasure in this wilderness of Lent, but also of this world that is groaning. Help us to be the sons and daughters who are being revealed in the midst of this groaning. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.